Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter solution for nasal allergy symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray, and Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, I'm flying solo this week as Cass is away on an international adventure. Um, I won't say where, but I would like to send a very special congratulations to Scott and Mariah, who are part of our extended dressed family. I'm sending you both big hugs from NYC. And while Cass has been away, I have undertaken my own little adventure into one of my favorite topics and with the assistance of one of Cass and I's favorite podcasters. So this week we are joined by Claire Press, author, educator, sustainability activist, and creator of the incredibly insightful and important podcast, Wardrobe Crisis. Each week, Claire tackles some of the biggest issues fashion faces today, from labor rights to ecology to the most cutting-edge developments in sustainable materials, and Claire chats with designers, scientists, and some of the most innovative minds of our day who are working on making the fashion system more ethical and equitable for us all. So we are so pleased that Claire is joining us to talk about her recently released book, Wear Next, Fashioning the Future, and that is wear as in W-E-A-R next. This is an incredibly clever title, which charts fashion's path forward and is also a follow-up to Claire's second book, Rise and Resist, How to Change the World. So both are excellent deep dives into fashion's impact on not only the planet, but also how we as consumers can do our part to help course correct some of fashion's faults. Without further ado, part one of our two-part episode this week with Claire Press. Claire, this is a wildly, probably unfathomably overdue welcome to Dressed. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're my favorite podcast. I listen all the time. <laughs> I'm really pleased to be here. No, 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 no. Why are you trying to make me blush right now? 
there are a few people that we have always known that have been very remiss that we have not had them on the podcast. And you are one of those people that is like at the tippy top of that list. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you finally for being here. This conversation we're going to have. Can't wait. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, you and I, of course, met back in the pre-COVID days in 2019. I think it was um, definitely at Fashion Week in Australia. And somebody who I don't, I do not know who this person is, had the genius plan to seat us next to each other at a fashion show. They're like, hey, let's put the fashion podcasters next to each other. I feel like then we were the only fashion podcast. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> for sure. I love for that sure. you came to Sydney. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, so much gratitude to whoever that person was, who I don't think either of us will probably ever know who that is, but also so much gratitude to you for writing the book that we're going to talk about today. This book feels hella mission critical at this moment. <laughs> so before we get to where next, I'm hoping that you can tell our listeners a little bit about your background, your journey into the world of fashion, and also how you found your voice as a fashion activist. Thank you, April. So I do like the idea of being a fashion activist. These days I call myself a sustainability communicator. Um, I work giving talks. I host a podcast. I write books. I, I love to go and talk to students at universities, for example. That's kind of what I do these days. I'm not a very commercial beast. <laughs> I care about making change and educating people and getting people to think about the issues around sustainability. But my background was in commercial fashion magazines. And I always wanted to be a writer. I'm a Brit who moved to Sydney in my early 20s. I spent five years as the features director of Australian Vogue and I worked for a while at Marie Claire as well. In 2020, I became the first ever sustainability editor at Vogue. Before that was a thing, it's a thing now, there's loads of them, which I'm proud of. But I guess I don't really feel aligned with magazines these days. I, I see myself, as you said, more in terms of activism and this idea of spreading stories and awareness around sustainability, which is what I care about in fashion. I did actually have though a few years out from magazines in the early 2010s when I had a vintage mm -hmm. store. So I feel like we've got that connection that I love clothes. You know, when I say that I've fallen out of love a bit with commercial fashion, I still absolutely love the idea of fashion as identity forming, as communication. And I love how beautifully made vintage things are. So I'm still obsessed with that. But yes, these days, I think of myself as rather outside the idea of selling clothes. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I don't know if it might help to tell you why this happened. <laughs> I would love to know why. When the Rana Plaza factory disaster happened in April of 2013, and I'm sure many listeners will be aware of this, but if they're not, it was a catastrophic garment factory disaster that left more than 1,100 people dead and hundreds of children orphaned and hundreds of people injured. It happened just out of outside of Dakar in Bangladesh. And the background to this was that the building had begun to crack. So it had begun to, it was obvious it was unsafe before it collapsed, but workers were ordered back to complete orders for what turned out to be famous fashion companies from countries like the US, Australia and Europe. 
So when that happened and I saw it on the news, I was working as a journalist at Vogue and I remember very clearly thinking this is this is connected to what I do and there's something wrong with this equation. If I'm a journalist and I'm telling stories, but I don't have the capacity to tell this story, which in the con confines of glossy magazine dom I really didn't, then I thought I need to do something different. And fast forward, I moved my work towards sustainability and reporting on ethical fashion issues, not immediately, but just over the next sort of few months and couple of years. Okay, well, I just want to interrupt for one second here. And I'm just going to say, when are the tears going to come at some point in this conversation that we're probably going to have? <laughs> because I'm already getting teary. We just started. <laughs> I mean, I think, thank you, April, for, for, acknowledging the emotion of this because I think as well when you and I care about fashion we care about people those two things are you can't separate them and I think sometimes people think fashion is all frivolity not if you listen to dressed because you know about all the serious and important stories that underpin it but it can be easy to dismiss it as just image or just a bit silly or just fun but actually it's got deep impact on the environment and on people mm -hmm. and that is entirely what your book is about um it's called where next and of course it's your second book and i just want to say that one of the things i enjoyed so much about where next is the fact that while it addresses like head on all these really kind of thorny systemic problems in the current fashion industry, you know, the ones that are causing me to get a little emotional right now. It's not all doom and gloom. It's not. No, <laughs> it's really not. Thank you. It's really not. I wrote a miserable book about what was wrong. This is actually a hopeful book about what people are doing that's brilliant and sparkling and amazing that could show us the different future. Yeah. I mean, you paint this whole broader picture for us all about what the issues are but then also you introduce us to some of the visionaries who are working to address these issues. And each of the chapters is themed and each of the chapters begins with a passage that you yourself wrote about this imagined brighter future on that theme um, when it comes yeah. to a particular topic in fashion. So, you know, I, I also really like the fact that you acknowledge that consumers are now becoming a little bit more savvy on some of these topics in terms of ethics and sustainability when it comes to like the purchasing power. So I'm curious because you and I think you and I have been kind of like wandering in various forms in this realm of fashion and about the same amount of time. But what was the current state of affairs when you first entered fashion professionally? And do you think that how consumers see fashion now has changed in the last you know, 15 years or so. It's changed so much in the last four or five years. And I feel very excited about this huge upswell of awareness around these issues of fashion's environmental and social impact. When I first started working in this space, it was not a conversation. I had zero idea about it. I'd never heard of it. I didn't know what the word sustainability meant. It certainly wasn't connected to fashion in my life. But April, I did some research for you because yay and this isn't in the book but i just thought it'd be interesting <laughs> to think about the history of it i was going to say to you that my own experience of seeing sustainability emerge as a conversation in fashion and i started working in the early 2000s in independent magazines and then in vogue mm -hmm. my own experience was with emerging designers 
but actually if you look back on this i mean we can all we can all come back to make do and mend in the world war ii era which mm-hmm. was you might say that's the beginning of our obsession with tackling waste because of necessity yeah thrift fine but when i was thinking about dressed in the history of fashion i think we could say the first wave of sustainable fashion was in the 60s if you think about hemp and natural fibers and Mm -hmm. connecting with nature which i love and the whole birth of the environmentalist movement and then in the early 70s in 1970 there was the first earth day which i do mention in the book which one in ten americans came out on the streets to protest on behalf of mother earth that's amazing that's a huge number of people who were waking up to the environmental crisis. I don't reckon they'd connected it to their clothes at that point. However, we can look back on that timeline and say, okay, that was an awakening. And then I hadn't known this until I sort of just did this research for this conversation, but both the Clean Clothes Campaign, which is a human rights organization based in Amsterdam, and the fair trade movement started at that time. And then if you think about Well, the one that I would have jumped on was punk. So even though that wasn't about saving the earth or community, it was about DIY. And then the bit that I do sort of feel more familiar with is that in the 80s and 90s, you had the first wave of lots of British fashion designers that were really staking their claim towards ethics and sustainability. You got Catherine Hamnett with her protest tees. There were some underground ones like Junkie Styling. They were basically upcyclers very small independent and I just did an interview the other day with this guy called Dr Noki who's one of the first underground upcyclers in the 90s it was about no logo and culture jamming and then you got Stella McCartney challenging leather in the luxury industry and then you sort of fast forward to today when there's a massive explosion of young designers that are using that label of sustainability but yeah when I began no idea when I began it was all about glamour and status and designer who had the most fancy designer item i mean think about when you have no money particularly when it's a privilege to be able to buy beautifully made clothes it is or it's either a a financial privilege or a time privilege that you have you have the capacity to seek it out if it's vintage or secondhand but when you're young and you got no money you're just going to buy cheap things i did when i was at, at college i would buy fast fashion i didn't know there was anything wrong with it it just seemed accessible and trendy Well, one idea that connects to what you just said that you put forth super early in your book, and and I want to say this is a simple theory, but this gets a lot trickier perhaps when you start to examine like your own feelings and your actions when it comes to about what I'm about to say. You say in the book quite plainly that value is more than price. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that if there's any one thing that our listeners could potentially take away from our conversation today, this might be it. That sentiment is really the entire underpinning of so many things that we're going to chat about in our conversation today in more detail. Could you elaborate on that idea a little bit further for us that that value is more than price? What do you mean by that? I always remember this quote, which I did not write. I don't know where it comes from, but it's It's something that we say in the fashion revolution and movement, which is somebody always pays the price for too cheap. So you might think that buying, I don't know, a five dollar t-shirt, yeah, (laughs) or three for the price of ten, you know, three for ten dollars. You might think that's a bargain, 
but in that equation someone has to pay for that and it's usually the garment worker or the environment but that line comes from one of those imagined scenarios in the book do you want me to read it I reckon I could read it better than I could remember how I how I put it but essentially it's it's two paragraphs and it starts the fashion world is built on genuine beauty and then it goes to explain what that might look like and then the second paragraph ends with that line about value and it says greater government regulation means that new clothing from global brands is much more sustainable than it used to be there is also less of it we used to pretend that fast fashion was a democratizing force simply because the price points were low we've wised up and now recognize that value means more than price yes yes there are human beings on the other side of you know making every single thing you buy so when you think about buying a three or four dollar t-shirt where does that get you dress listeners whatever your reason for wanting to learn a new language whether it's an upcoming international adventure communicating with your friends and family abroad or even professional purposes rosetta stone has got you covered as the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and so many more. And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English translations, so you learn to speak listen and think in your new language. And right now you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off. That's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life, which Cass is frankly amazing. It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, did you know that you can save on everything from fashion to beauty, home decor to groceries, even kids' school supplies with Rakuten? Rakuten is a shopping platform that partners with over 3,500 stores across every category. Beauty, clothing, electronics, home, department stores, pets, you name it. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not be saving while doing it? It really is a no-brainer. How does it work, you ask? Well, stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via a check or PayPal quarterly. Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. So join the 17 million members who have already saved at their favorite brands. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cash back really adds up. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. Menopause, perimenopause, these can be some of the most uncomfortable phases of a woman's life. If you find yourself in either of these, well, Hormone Harmony is here for you. Hormone Harmony capsules contain science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. 
They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it really shows. And get this. Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it. But it is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. And for a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code DRESSED at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code DRESSED for 15% off today. Okay. I think more, most importantly, um, one of the things that we should talk about is production. Among the many jaw-dropping statistics that you relate to us in the book is the fact that since the year 2000, clothing production has either doubled or tripled, which mm. is staggering. You point out the fact that we don't seem to be getting any more fashionable with this <laughs> overproduction. And I think this is really interesting because a few weeks ago, we actually had um, one of our listeners reach out to us and they sent us a request to address this issue. She had seen something about this on Instagram, about this lack of like style evolution over the, like, the last 20 years or so. So I'm curious about like, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's, it's almost like the, this majority of increased production is reflecting this quickening of, of it's not reflecting a quickening of fashion. It's just more clothes. Mm. Does that make any sense? I think so. So essentially we're overproducing and underusing our clothes. And when you yeah. said we've either doubled or tripled clothing production, that's right. And we don't know exactly how much we're making. Brands don't want to tell us. Right. And something like 85% of them don't disclose their production volumes. So we don't actually know how much is out there. That stat of doubled since 2000 comes from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, but it dates from 2015. So we've definitely made more oh, wow. since then. Yeah. I reckon, of course, there are still creative dresses out there, and I know many of them. And thinking back to that punk thing about DIY and young designers. And if you stand outside FIT today, you're going to see a lot of beautiful creative dressers who've made stuff from scratch. I love that. So of course that still exists and that's inspiring. But with this overabundance of clothing, if you do an experiment, which I did to write this book at the beginning <laughs> to try and figure out what people wear, just do it. It's actually funny. If you have a few minutes, I sat outside a train station with a notepad and I made some columns in a book that said jeans, t-shirts, baseball caps, sneakers. And I was looking for remarkable creative dressing that you might see on a street style website or in the pages of a magazine. And I saw none of it. I just saw tank tops, jeans, 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 jeans. There's a stat that reckons that at any one time, a third of us on the planet are wearing jeans. So it's almost like the backdrop is there's so many trends. They're so fast now. They've become like a nonsense. And if you really look at what ordinary people are wearing, I mean, I'm a fashion woman and I'm wearing a pair of jeans right now. So, and they're not exciting jeans. So I actually think the dream of what we might want to wear if we had the time and space and energy to craft a look is limited to special occasions for many of us and for many of us we're just wearing the same old thing but just so much more of it and isn't that like when you start thinking about fashion in that way it's very disconnected from the conversations we have about creative designers or runways or the met gala red carpet or you know take your pick of exciting 
sartorial expression. That's not the same thing as what we're all wearing as we go about our day. And I don't think we look at that disconnect enough in the fashion media when we're trying to be cultural commentators. Let's be realistic. What do people actually want to wear to be comfortable and get about their day? Right. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, I guess that's why I was saying, like, make, trying to make that or attempting <laughs> um, to make that distinction between is this fashion or are these yeah. just more clothes, right? They're and, just more clothes. <laughs> yeah, it's just more clothes, honestly. And like, there's this other, maybe way more niche conversation that's happening right now about is fashion actually doing anything right now in and of itself? Well, because it's so often simply mining the past without even putting much of a twist on it. Like, oh, the 70s is back. Yeah. And and don't get me wrong. I love a good fashion history reference. I do. And I get it. That's my jam. But I also, over the last like 10 years or so, have seen this thing of, because I am a fashion historian, seeing fashion not pushing itself forward. Mm. Right? It's it seems as if it's pushing itself backward. Do you know why I think that is? I think it's to do with its hyper commercialization. So if you look at the the number of clothes we're producing has grown exponentially, but so is the value of this business. And I actually find it grotesque. I didn't come for this. I'm not into I'm it. You. I don't want to go. I'm with you. <laughs> like it's just billionaires and venture capitalists with spreadsheets looking at what they can mark up to make more money. And I know that sounds cynical but I just find that all completely alienating. And what I'm interested in is coming back to that fashion student standing outside FIT or this, the crochet artist at home or the natural dyer experimenting in, I don't know, their local town with a community of other people that care about it. That to me is a different approach to how we fashion our identities and communities and relationships that is rich and beautiful. And the the other side of just, buy a branded item in the airport yeah i don't yeah, yeah. i don't like it <laughs> i and i think it's yeah we're poorer for it i think yeah there's a there's a difference between creation and propagation and i guess Ooh, i kind yeah. of feel like right now like of what a lot of big fashion looks like is just propagation it it's nothing more than that you know and i think that uh, that that I don't think any of our listeners are going to be tremendously shocked when I say that I think part of this increase in consumption is of clothing specifically is spurred by influencer culture. You know, I'm super happy that you introduced me to this concept in the book, Claire, of Everett, Everett M. Rogers' diffusion of innovation theory. I had never read this before. It's fascinating. It was originally published in 1962. And Without a doubt, it kind of explains what's happening in this rise of the influencer. So I'm hoping that you might be able to give us a little bit of a summary of the diffusion of innovations theory as it applies yes. to fashion today. My, my mind was blown when I was like, oh, this makes perfect sense. It makes so much perfect sense that like, how did it not occur to me before, <laughs> I guess? Mm -hmm. I'm with you though, April. So I write narrative nonfiction that involves me interviewing people far smarter than me all around the world that can give me their expertise and perspectives. And I learned this from a guy called Chris Sanderson, who is co-founder of something called the Future Laboratory, which is a trend forecasters globally working, but based head office in London. And he explained this to me as 
well, I was asking him, how do we predict the future? Is there a science to that? Is it all about, if I'm going to write about the future of fashion, are there some things I can pin it on? I mean, I, we say, he said to me, there is no crystal ball. But what do we think about when we, I don't know, what comes to mind, palm reading or astrology or all of the ancient tools that maybe people have tried to use to figure out what's coming next. But the trend forecasters do have a science. And that is about essentially gathering as much data as possible from people who are seen as leaders or from people who they've got scattered around the world in different communities looking at what's happening on the streets. And he told me like, cool there might hunters. Be. That was like a whole so profession cool for hunters. a while. Yes, <laughs> I remember that, right? So he's saying that, that you would, he's got people on the streets in Tokyo that say, I've noticed there are several new bars offering matcha tea you know and all that data then gets crunched up and they figure out this is a trend but the diffusion of innovations theory essentially separates us into those who lead those in the middle and those who lag and what's interesting about this is the percentages i think it's three percent are the innovators who are creating the trends as they go then you got disruptors and that's only another like 12 or 15%. And those are the ones who follow those trend setters first. And if you take that group together, they're the ones who are setting the trend agenda. Mm-hmm. And then it's like the 15% vast majority. Yeah, yeah, right. Then in the middle, you got the vast majority who basically wait till all that's happened and the trend has been set and then dare to take a few steps towards picking it up and then you got a chunk at the end who are the laggards who never pick anything up until it's passe yeah but this idea of the the ones in the middle the majority they're following yeah so they're not creating the cutting edge of what we're seeing in fashion but they're definitely going to pick it up so if they see that everyone's talking about balenciaga maybe they look for the logo t-shirt yes I'm sure you can think of examples, right, of trends that have been created in a niche or an underground way, and then they get picked up by the majority and you see them everywhere. Barbie pink, right? Although that's an interesting one because that is fabricated by a commercial entity, right? So I thought that was chilling, actually, watching the Barbie thing explode. Well, it happened for like a whole year and a half. Like mm-hmm. that's money. leading up to the release of the film. I was like, wait, this film isn't already out. <laughs> like that's how much we had been marketed to. That's essentially companies, Mattel and the film distributors throwing pots of money at trying to hook the majority into following the trend that they artificially constructed, which I found again very interesting to see how it played out because once everything was pink the majority wanted everything to be pink for a little while well i don't know if you read this article or not but at one point there was a a lack of a certain shade of pink paint in the world no like (laughs) yeah they had bought all of the pink paint in those certain like three or four shades because all of the sets on the Barbie movie were real. That was not CGI. So they needed that immense amount of very specific shades of pink to create the sets for the Barbie movie. So there was a temporary, um, yeah, run but on pink paint. The, that is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? And then I think that what it made me think, April, was what about all those people that bought the pink because it felt like a pink moment and then in a couple of months the pink moment is passe this is why we've got a waste problem in fashion 
suddenly can't wear the pink. Pink's over. We have to talk about trends because obviously the word trend is part of contemporary fashion, but I still to this day say that the word trend is a is a dirty word to me. Chris Sanderson said to me, as I said exactly that to him, <laughs> I said, I don't like, you know, trends put me off. They seem to be a bit sinister. And he said, no, 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 no. He didn't like the diminutive, which is trendy. And he bristled about being described as trendy, but he said trend setting or a trend is simply a movement of people going in a certain direction. That's actually values agnostic. So you can't, it, it's not good or bad. It's just fascinating. How do we move as a society? What direction are we moving in? That's all a trend really means, he says. But I'm with you that I find it hard not to bring a values judgment onto it because I know what the impact is on the other side when you come to the waste. And, all, and also when you come to feeling bad, I reckon trends make you feel bad. They're designed to make you feel like you're left out unless you're very uh, emotionally robust and keen on going your own way. You use this word sinister, and I think that's so fascinating because once you start to realize that this phenomenon of the diffusion of innovations theory is quantifiable, right? There are 15% that are kind of like leading the way. Somebody has already figured out these numbers, right? Um, and this concept has been around for more than 60 years. It's, it's informing how we are advertised to. And once you really grasp that this is all kind of like this bigger, like this is a bigger overarching strategy that has been implemented upon us, you know, it's influencer culture is, is not just someone that you might admire online sharing parts of their life with you. No, <laughs> this is a numbers game at this point. And I think that once you realize how intentional this is, it becomes really hard to forget. And I don't know who in our audience needs to hear this. I think that some of our listeners probably know this very well already, but maybe some of our younger listeners haven't really thought through this idea that fashion is feeding influencer culture. And, and ultimately it's the strategy to weaponize your aspirational desire to consume more. And I just, I wanna use this word weaponizing because consuming more is often against our own personal interests. And, and it's definitely against the good of the planet, which is a fair section of what your book talks about. So I, I, don't, I don't know, I just felt like I needed to say that explicitly. This is what's happening, it's a game, right? Absolutely, I love how you put that April. One of the more disturbing, I think, influencer outreach programs has to be Shein. We have been approached by them so many times. Have you? Oh, yes, yes, yes. They won't talk to me. They don't want to talk to us in terms of like bringing us into the programming. They're just trying to give us free clothes <laughs> to like advertise. Well, I want to talk to the head of sustainability. His background is Disney. Wow. I was. That says a lot. It's just a very interesting thing. So Shein is a Chinese company, enormous, worth billions, one of the most valuable companies in the world that is associated with this, again, sinister, I think, term ultra fast fashion. And Yes, yes, yes. I want to talk about that because until your book, I'd never heard that term ultra fast fashion. So please continue. They don't want to be grilled about their sustainability. They want to greenwash, look like they're doing something that matters. But actually, and they, they say, you know, we're not ready. We're, we're slowly working towards doing better. But actually, they're not willing to be scrutinized. And I find this extremely galling. We talk about fast fashion a lot on the show. But 
what they're doing now is unfathomable. The numbers of new models, and when I say that, I mean like styles, like new types of garments, new models of garments that they're launching every day on the site is in the tens of thousands. Even knowing what I know, like I still can't wrap my brain around this. It's mad. So that's actually not my work. It's the work of two fantastic American journalists. Their names are Louise Matsakis and Megan Toybin. And they did this article that went viral for an online platform called Rest of World. And then it was picked up by media outlets all around, all around the world. But what they did was essentially spend six months digging into Sheehan's offering. They ordered a bunch of stuff. They looked at the algorithms behind it. They figured out that, for example, one thing they'd bought came from a micro-influencer on TikTok who's a vintage dealer. And essentially had posted a picture of herself in this cute vest. And then suddenly Sheehan's churning it out in vast numbers and selling it without attributing it. The interesting thing for me, apart from the numbers of new styles that Sheehan posts daily, is that there is no design room. So you're cutting out this creative design stage of the fashion production cycle. That's what makes it tick, right? It's just an algorithm. Think of a blender, just chuck in all the pictures, spew out all the stuff. Right. Yeah. Designed by algorithm. And mm -hmm. I think what's wrong with this is threefold. One is that they are when they the algorithms aren't crediting the sources of the inspiration. Two is that according to several serious credible television documentary investigations, workers are not being paid fairly in the supply chain. This is one thing that I want to bring up here and talk about more, but please continue. And the other one is just the waste. If you're putting out 10,000 new styles a day and they argue that they're only producing them in small production runs until they take off, so they, they say it's not as wasteful as it sounds, but we know that it is wasteful. And I know that just anecdotally from looking in thrift stores and seeing the amount of cheap polyester rubbish with a Shein label in it that has been turfed in there very quickly. Yeah. And you're, you're talking about like some of the human rights abuses. Shein is in the middle of a couple different lawsuits right now. And some of those lawsuits have some pretty shocking allegations at their core. Some of them are tied to modern slavery allegations. What the hell is happening over there? This is mind boggling. And, and I guess, I guess maybe you and I aren't entirely like shocked but maybe some of our listeners really need to know what's happening right now. I promised you good news about the future. I'm still dwelling on the misery. But <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunately not a new story that garment workers are exploited in the fashion supply chain, particularly at the lower end of the market where prices really squeeze the most marginalized, which is always the garment worker. So should we be surprised if we hear that the buzziest fashion company of the moment operating at the low price point is embroiled in accusations of either garment worker exploitation or worse, modern slavery in the supply chain? No, no one's surprised, unfortunately. And I'm sort of choosing my words carefully because we know that big companies are litigious, but maybe we'll share a link and point listeners to the UK Channel 4 documentary that revealed workers being paid piecework rates of pennies to make this stuff. But a recent 
court case in the US that was in June, I thought was, this was after I'd written the book, but very interesting development when we think about not attributing copyright or respecting the inspiration for this so-called design that didn't have a designer. This is interesting, right? I've written it down here because I wouldn't remember it. So three independent designers filed this lawsuit in June alleging that she insulted exact copies of their work, which they argue violates the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations RICO Act. Which is usually used to, I guess, catch mobsters, right? Racketeering. Yeah. 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 In the US. Or most often is purposed for. But in a way, when I read that word, I think, well, that is what's happening, right? Yeah. <laughs> and And again, alleged. But if we think about the business model that is, I, I used the term values agnostic before, algorithms aren't unless they've been extremely carefully designed with ethics in mind which we know they're not they're not moral they're not thinking is this unethical to steal or scrape this inspiration from all these people who are humans they're not they're not designed to do that and so the companies that profit off of that are in a moral dilemma and i thought it was interesting to see these court cases come because we know that the history of copyright in fashion is hard if not non-existent when it comes to design one of the things that i acquired for our collection at fit a few years ago is like this fascinating book um i think it's from 1910 or 1911 which is very very early on but it is in french and it is the history of fashion lawsuit copyright litigations prior to 1910. Wow. So if if anybody is interested in this, we do have this extremely rare book. So interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. I haven't I haven't delved into it completely, but now that I think about it, I should probably write something or maybe do an episode about this. Can I come to your house and go through your library as a podcast? <laughs> maybe I'll sure. Claire, you are always welcome. <laughs> always, 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 always. That would be so interesting. Dress listeners, we will end our chat with Claire here for today, but in part two of this episode, we will meet some of the innovators tackling some of these pressing issues that we have just discussed. And Claire will cast a beacon of hope for fashion's future. So please stay tuned for part two. And until then, dress listeners, that does it for us today. May you consider the very real impact your shopping choices have next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you, so if you'd like to write to us, you can do so by sending us an email at hello at dressedhistory.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. If you would like to follow Claire on Instagram, you can find her at Mrs. Press, that's M-R-S-P-R-E-S-S. And also, of course, her podcast is at wardrobecrisis.com or on any of your major podcast platforms. And of course, her latest book, Where Next? Fashioning the Future, is out now. Stay tuned, more dress coming your way soon. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media.